This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Gerd Loyal back to the podcast. Gerd is a food writer, future foods consultant and regular columnist for Olive Magazine, sharing his favourite ingredients, books, producers and foodie destinations each month. And he's also become a bit of a podcast regular. <laughs> I really, I'm here all the time. Hello welcome again. Back, <laughs> Hi. I'm thrilled to have you. So we've had a bit of a run on the podcast this year discussing our favourite cookery books and food writers. And I thought this time we could take a dive into the longer form writing and look at some food memories memoirs, both past and present. But firstly, good. how would you define a food memoir? And why do you think they're having a bit of a moment? Yeah, I mean, I totally love this genre of books. They're generally a work of narrative nonfiction, although mm. sometimes they can kind of have fictional elements in them, but where food almost becomes like a sort of character in itself. So they're often diaries, or they're telling you kind of the history of a society or a country or something. Yeah. But the food is kind of the lens that it's told through. And often what's exciting and interesting about them is that food amplifies the emotions of the person or the journey they're going on. Or it might be a kind of commentary on mm. society or class or gender or yeah. all sorts of stuff. And I think for me, this is what really distinguishes them from memoirs where they're not food memoirs because here food you're supposed to read into what the food is there for. And like the, the author actively wants you 
to read into everything that a recipe might do or the yeah. way that they do it. And they'll very specifically use food words that they want you to read into. And I think that's quite exciting, quite interesting. And it gives you this whole other lens on this person's journey yeah. in a very practical sense. They are that shelf in a bookshop that says other food writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if someone's like, what's food memoir? I'm like, go to the other food writing bit. That It's all of those books that you're always like, what are those books over yeah. there? And I love that shelf. I think it's such an interesting shelf. I love it. Okay, we've, we've got 10 brilliant ones to get through. So let's dive in to a recent one, which is Angela Hui's um, takeaway stories from a childhood behind the counter. Yes, I totally love this one. Um, so Angela is an award-winning writer and editor. She used to be an editor for people like Time Out, and she's done lots of stuff for people like sort of Huffington Post. Uh, she works with Vittles. And actually, she curated this incredible exhibition at the Migration Museum, which sort of told the stories of Chinese takeaways through this, um, sort of oh, being a child of, yeah. of a Chinese takeaway. And that's what this book, Takeaway, is kind of all about. So Andrew grew up in a Chinese takeaway in rural Wales. Um, it was called The Lucky Star. Uh, and I love this. There's a passage in it where it talks about when they opened it. It was on the most auspicious date of the century, okay. <laughs> which was the 8th of August, 1988. 8888, oh, yeah. Because 8's the... Exactly, because 8 is a lucky number. So I thought that was really exciting, the fact that it's called the lucky star. So, you know, from a really young age, Angela was, I suppose, you know, was behind the counter and very much grew up behind that counter. And she talks about this really interesting experience she had of being a Chinese restaurant countertop kid, which lots of people around the country were. And it's a really interesting lens that she sort of explores her own Welsh-Chinese identity through. But by sort of tracing this kind of evolution of Chinese takeaways and the families that sort of set up these very enterprising businesses. What the thing that I love about it is that, you know, she firstly sort of has this really interesting sort of paradox of fulfilling her Chineseness with her Welshness. And there's Mm. some really moving passages about food and language in particular. Um, But she kind of talks about the rhythm of being in the takeaway and all the stuff that you sort of don't see. So, you know, the family dinners before service, the research trips to Hong Kong, preparing for the weekend rush with her brothers. And, you know, she talks about, you know, the times that there was sort of racism that her family faced. And, you know, her dad had to wield a cleaver and kind of (laughs) run after people. And it, it really gives you this sort of insight into this life kind of behind the counter. But... It's really immersive. And what I love about it is that she celebrates Chinese takeaway food. She sort of very explicitly says, you know, this was not the cuisine that we ate at home. And we knew that this wasn't authentic, in inverted commas, Chinese food. But this was the food of resilience. You know, our families bent the cuisine to cater for an audience and to give ourselves kind of better lives. And therefore, Chinese takeaway food and, you know, all sorts of diasporic takeaway food, Indian included, become their own thing. And they kind of become the symbols of these amazing diasporas around the country. Um, It's a brilliant book. It's really evocative. You kind of get her whole journey from Wales and to London and all these experiences she has effectively working in the family business from a really young age. Um, And there's some amazing recipes in there. There's one for Chinese steamed eggs, one for sweet potato congee, and there's an amazing spring roll recipe, which I've done a few times. So, I mean, one of my favourite quotes is where she sort of talks about the role that this Chinese Mm. takeaway cuisine has kind of taken in society now. And she talks about things like the spice bag in Ireland, and in Liverpool they have salt and pepper chips. And she has this amazing phrase. She says, food is adapted to regional preferences and local palates in order to survive. But it's something that should be considered as innovative and yeah. not looked down upon. I think that's really powerful. You know, it's a really great read and really insightful and a real celebration of that diasporic Chinese experience. I love that one. Okay, next we've got um, MFK Fisher, who I think we talked about in the classic food writers um, 
episode we did earlier this year was it wolf in the kitchen i think it was, was uh it? it was uh we talked about consider the oyster and we talked about uh how to cook a wolf right. yeah how to cook a wolf i yes. think i just made up wolf, in the, wolf in the kitchen fine, it's fine. it's a new book yeah um but for this one, you've got two, the gastronomical me and map of another town. Yes. I mean, I love MFK Fisher. This is a topic I often end up talking about. And with non-food people, it sort of bores them. And they're like, I have no idea what you're saying. So <laughs> she is this incredible food writer who W.H. Auden described as the greatest American writer, not just the greatest wow. American food writer, but the greatest American writer. Um, she was a really interesting character. She was born in Michigan. She lived in California. She spent a lot of time in Dijon. She spent a lot of time in Switzerland. She was a sort of a food writer. But she, her, her writing kind of crosses genres. She uses food as a metaphor to yeah. talk about life and love. She wrote for The New Yorker for Gourmet magazine, and she was very much part of this Julia Child, James Beard food circle. Mm. But I suppose she was the sort of more literary one of that set. Um, but she had this incredible life. You know, she was married three times. She had two children. She enjoyed fine food and kind of pleasures <laughs> of the table. And she's it. very explicit in how she talks about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are two very famous memoirs by her. The, the Gastronomical Me is the very famous one, yeah. which is her big memoir where spiritual nourishment and philosophical nourishment through food. And mm. it's, it's all about love, basically, through the lens of food. Um, the one, though, that I've just read, which I absolutely love, is called Map of Another Town. Now, this is about... MFK Fisher's time in Aix-en-Provence, which is this beautiful town just north of Marseille, which she returned to again and again in her life. And this is basically her own culinary memoir of all of her time wow. there, but told through the lens of food. It's an incredible... I mean, it's a beautiful town. I've never been there. It's very high on my list of yeah. places to go. But she sort of traces the history of this town. She's there sort of just after the war. So yeah. it's very much coming back to life after, you know, all the horrors of the Second World War. But she's sort of there as this American with two children who's sort of a famous writer in America, but not really known in <laughs> France, who's writing about food. But she sort of encounters all of these incredible characters. So, you know, whether it's kind of the waiters or the porters or yeah. the people that work in the bakery or the kind of bars that she goes to every day and she does her writing in or the hotels that she ends up living in. It's this like incredible portrait of this specific time and place, um, but told through her slightly abstract lens where she's explaining all of these emotions of kind of, I suppose, being yeah. American outsider in France in post-war times, but really joyfully told through yeah. food. And there, there are some hilarious and quite obscure sort of weird scenarios she gets herself into. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one passage that I absolutely love, and it's, it's a bit where her daughter's, um, it's one of her daughter's birthday and she goes to the local bakery and she asks, the, the daughter says, I want you to make a cake in yeah. the shape of a giant snake. <laughs> <laughs> so the, she sort of describes how this giant reptilian snake kind of gets made by this chef who's so confused he's never had to do this before. <laughs> um, and she sort of describes this coiled layer by layer sponge which has green almond paste all over it. And then she describes this tiny little pink fork with sugar that's protruding through its teeth. And then she says, there was a miasma of Alsatian Kirsch hovering <laughs> over and around it. So I just so love not the, safe for kids Not safe for kids in any way. I just, I mean, I find that so like wonderfully sort of French, this idea of being in this provincial French town, asking for a kid's birthday cake and, and it reeking of Kirsch. <laughs> I think that's amazing. And does, did it make you want to go and, and visit the town? I am obsessed. And you know what? Really yeah. interestingly, there is an Instagram account called 
MFK Aches Footsteps, which just started recently yeah. and is actually documenting all of the oh places that she mentions God. in the book. That yeah. sounds incredible. And and so so when's your flight booked? <laughs> I am hoping to get to Marseille in the next few weeks. Like literally, it's really high on my list. And yeah. I mean, I just there is such a wealth of MFK Fisher writing it. to discover. But for me, you know, if especially if you're a kind of francophile like me, Map of Another Town is a really interesting one. Love that. Okay, now a bit more contemporary food writing from Claire Finney, who, do you know Claire? I, I do know Claire, yeah. she's yeah. great. She's brilliant. So yeah, Claire is an award-winning food writer. Yeah. Again, she very much looks at things like sustainability, food and relationships, food and feminism. She talks about things like trends. She's very big on talking about cheese, but yeah. she looks at all these sort of <laughs> things through the lens of food. And I love her writing because I yeah. find it really evocative, but... It's very much a kind of exploration of emotions and, you know, the human experience, but told through food. And her new book, uh, which is called Hungry Heart, an incredible title, and it has a really beautiful cover as well, actually, with um, Hungry Heart written in spaghetti letters, uh, which I just totally love. But it really kind of is that. It's asking these sort of really interesting questions of how does what we eat define us? And also how does what we eat help to explain the relationships we have with others. So it's a really interesting book. It's sort of part memoir, but part interview style. She's interviewed some quite interesting people like Dana Henry, Ravnik Gill, B. Wilson. I was actually also interviewed for this book. (laughs) Um, But the way it's kind of split is that she has different chapters where there is a recipe that Mm. is the crux and almost the sort of soul of that chapter. But then it kind of looks at different elements of love and food. So there's a whole chapter on maternal love and the recipe for that is her mum's cheesy pasta. Um, There's a whole section on the food relationships that you have with colleagues, for example. Um, And there's even a chapter which I found really moving and quite poignant, which was about food and death and mourning, which was really interesting. And she talks a lot about wakes and eating at wakes and kind of this idea yeah. of... It's weird, isn't it? Because I, I, I saw that in your notes and I was thinking about that, about um, my grandma's wake, um, which they have in this... There's a place... In, uh, in Gateshead, and it, it's called the Departure Lounge because it's actually a lounge. <laughs> what it's a, a name, wow. It's a, it's a lounge in like a, in a okay. kind of worker men's club, but it's it's called the Departure Lounge because that's where they have all the wakes. <laughs> but we had this, you know, you have you have like a big Georgie buffet, loads of drinks, yeah. everyone gets together and it becomes a kind of joyous afternoon and it's yeah. a celebration of life. It, it's almost more important to celebrate life through eating. And yeah. you know, eating, the act of eating is the act of being alive. Yeah. And actually in that moment, you do keep that person's memory alive and everyone being together for that person. And, you know, it's, it's I found that passage that, and that, actually that old chapter really poignant, yeah. um, really moving. I just love the way that it sort of gives you this whole different angle on this idea of food and love being so kind of intrinsically linked, which is actually, you know, is is, is sort of a theme that MFK Fisher has, for example. In in some ways, Claire's kind of continuing that kind of amazing It's like the language of it, isn't it? It's not not the cliche thing of like oysters or, you know, it's it's actually how do we connect through food? What do I, what I cook for you, what does it say about our relationship? Absolutely. And it doesn't even have to be what what you cook. There's this amazing bit in the middle. There's a whole chapter on courting, which I love. And um, (laughs) she has this story from the writer B. Wilson, which is about B. Wilson's grandparents making a ritual of going for a walk and sharing a two-fingered Kit Kat. Oh, that's so cute. Isn't that just adorable? But it's, yeah. this, it's such a sort of 
it's such a small gesture yeah. that's the food gesture but tells of this incredible love and intimacy and connection of you know and courting through a Kit yeah. Kat I mean I just think that's really <laughs> wonderful the other thing I love about this is that at the end there are these incredible sort of conversation starters where Claire's yeah. opening up the conversation and she sort of says what I want you to do next time you're having dinner or drinks whatever is ask these questions and, yeah. you know, so questions like what did you eat or drink in a recent breakup and why? Oh, wow. uh, what Christmas dinner dishes have you added or lost over the years? Which I think is a really interesting That's question. A really great one. And then what does romantic love to you mean specifically? Um, to me, it's crisps. I don't know what it is to you. <laughs> if someone what? feeds me crisps, I'm instantly falling really? in love with them. That's your romantic, <laughs> romantic that's your love language is crisps. crisps. <laughs> Definitely. Good. That's weird. It's but. a bit weird, you know. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, what's yours? What Something Jordy? Oh, prawn cocktail. Anything prawn cocktail. God, what foods has romantic love to you specifically? Oh, God, I don't know. I've been married for, I've been to, with Matt for 23 <laughs> years. I, I think that ship sailed. <laughs> oh, God, poor Matt. Are there, are there meals that Matt made for you that you still remember? Yes. He came to my house and he made, um, he, he used to live with this guy called um, Dean whose family were Jamaican and he learned how to make jerk chicken from Dean and he came to my flat and he filled the flat with smoke while saying, but you have to get, you have to really blacken the chicken first. That's what? part of the recipe. Amazing. And I've never forgotten it. So, was it yeah, delicious? It was amazing, yeah. Incredible. But yeah, it, it, I've sort of slightly taken over the cooking so I need to get okay. him back to that. It's good. He, he makes a great jerk chicken. Nice. So, yeah, so that was Hungry Heart, Claire Finney. Yeah, love that love one. Love that one. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, the next one. I haven't come across at all, this writer, but it sounds so fascinating. And you said it's the first food memoir it you is. ever read. Tell yes. me about The Settler's Cookbook. So The Settler's Cookbook is by a journalist called Yasmin Alibi-Brown. She is an incredible force of a lady. She came to the UK in 1972 from Uganda. Um, and if you sort of know the history of that time, the Asians that were in... Uganda got expelled and a lot of them had to come to the UK. But before that, her family had sort of been part of the exodus from India to Africa. So in some ways, she's this sort of incredible double immigrant because she went from India to Africa and then um, to the UK when the East Indians had to flee Uganda. So she has this sort of diasporic story. And what this book does is it tells that journey, but through her family's food and through the journey that her family has sort of taken. Um, 
And whilst there are moments that are sort of, you know, extremely difficult to kind of read, it's ultimately this celebration of food as a force that kind of keeps you going on and that howes you through. And that in some ways, the food as it comes with you across that that journey makes you become more sure of yourself. Uh, Even if it changes and you can't quite get the ingredients Mm. and you adapt it and you kind of move it on a little bit. Actually, it's about this whole idea of the food taking these incredible journeys that are sometimes difficult, but ultimately show the resilience of kind of diaspora. Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's an incredible force. She writes a lot about um, human rights and race uh, and gender equality. She's, you know, she's very much an activist as much as a writer. Um, but there's just this incredible sort of sense of joy and journey. Um, I suppose there's a sense of longing for things yeah. that are lost. But there's this also this sort of unapologetic sense of pride and this kind of drive forward through hardship. And it's, you know, it's really powerful reading. But again, there's incredible recipes in this. So she talks about things like shepherd's pie that's kind of enhanced with chili, uh, a Victoria sponge that's enlivened with saffron and lime juice. Uh, she talks about how ketchup ad- being added to a curry can be life-changing. Um, <laughs> and there's a recipe that I make from this all the time, which is a jogu cake, which is a sort oh, of, wow. it's kind of a brown sugar and peanut cake. What? So it's, it has raw peanuts that you kind of blitz up. Yeah. And then like brown sugar. It's very simple, but it's so tasty. Yeah. I think you don't often cook with raw peanuts that often no. these days. It's really, you know, it's it's really stunning. Some of the quotes that I love from it, there's, there's lots of amazing passages around reconnecting with the old intimacy of eating with hands, yeah. which I thought was really, really beautiful. And there's an incredible passage, which is a sort of bittersweet passage, which is about the last night she has in Uganda before they come over to England. Um, and she sort of says, uh, you know, we was, it was kind of our last supper in paradise with our friends. We remembered years gone by. And then she says, and what do you think we ate on that bittersweet night? And she goes... <laughs> Biryani, of course, <laughs> but with coconut cassava, fried green tilapia, yeah. East African fruit salad, and much more. Yeah. So, you know, I just love the idea of if, even in this bittersweet moment of having to leave Uganda, they made a biryani and they celebrated because yeah, you don't yeah. have biryani unless you're celebrating. So I there was this that. celebratory joy of, you know, life will continue. The next one, which I think we've spoken about before because it, it, it something pinged in my brain, which is the... I know it, it touches on the Marsala Hazan yes. tomato pasta, which we've talked about. And this is Rebecca Mae Johnson's Small Fires, which sounds so intriguing. I, I think this is one of the most radically genre-blurring, powerful books I've read probably in the last couple of years. I found it so intriguing. She is, uh, Rebecca Mae Johnson is a writer. She's an academic she uh, is also co-editor of the online platform Vittles, and she writes for all sorts of people like The Times Literary Supplement, Financial Times, The Guardian. And her writing very much sort of brings this idea of academic critical thinking into life and mm. but uses food as the kind of lens for that. So mm. this book, Small Fires, it's I mean, it's pretty radical. It's basically this sort of food memoir, which has themes of memory, bodily pleasure, the kind of subversive power of recipes. Okay. It's 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 quite erotic. It's about the erotics of food in many ways, which, you know, is, is again, is something that MFK Fisher started and then Rebecca Mae Johnson has made really kind of radical with this incredible boundary-pushing book, I would say. In essence, what it does is it traces Rebecca's personal journey through one recipe, which is the Machada Hazan tomato pasta yeah. with the whole onion, which I think we have talked about the recipe yeah. quite a few times. She basically in her life says that she's cooked this recipe thousands of times. Wow, okay. Um, it's a recipe that's just stayed with her. And she, she basically through this book, she recounts 
the where she was in her life, the hundredth time she made it, the two hundredth time she made it, the eight hundredth time she made it, the nine hundredth time she made it, the thousandth time she made it. So it's this incredible sort of journey. And, you know, she is an academic. She spends some time in Berlin. She sort of ends up going clubbing quite a lot. And then she's like, there's this incredible personal journey that she goes on. But it's almost a meditation in the kind of radical act of cooking the same recipe again and again and again that... Every time the recipe's cooked, you kind of get this snapshot of her. So the recipe almost takes on this life of its own. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really hard to describe what this book is because it is very much a kind of memoir. But it's really about thinking seriously about the small act of cooking. And this whole idea, you know, the, the title Small Fires just comes from the yeah. fact that, you know, creating a small fire in your kitchen on the gas stove can be what she would consider to be quite a radical act in many and ways. Is, and is it because it's exactly the same recipe that you that you have to think about the circumstance, yes. the dish, the kitchen, yes. how much time you have, how, yeah. how little time you have, if you, like, screw it up, basically, yeah. all of that and how Com- that, yeah. Complete. I mean, there's a, there's a quote from the book. So she puts, cooking is thinking. I'm writing an epic in which I cook the same recipe a thousand times. I'm writing against the tendency for people to diminish cooking as almost the opposite. So she's sort of saying, you know, cooking is thought. It's about being present. It's about, you know, being there in the moment. And actually, it's sort of quite radical to put yourself wholly into a moment. (laughs) Um, I really love it. I think it really sort of defies genre. It's had some amazing accolades and praise from, you know, the likes of kind of Olivia Lang and Nigella Lawson. I totally loved it. It's really stayed with me and I want to read it again. That one's definitely gone on my list. Okay, now we're back to America with a book from someone who has been called the most important chef in America by the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes. So this is from Kwame Anwachi, and it's called Notes from a Young Black Chef, a memoir. So Kwame is this sort of incredible chef in America who is a very acclaimed author, has uh, is a James Beard award-winning chef. Yeah. Um, and as you say, he was, you know, was named the most important chef in America. He had a really interesting journey. He was raised sort of between New York City, Nigeria, and Louisiana. Um, and was very much kind of exposed to cooking through his mother um, in his family home in the Bronx. But she sent him to Nigeria to learn some respect in many ways. Mm-hmm. And He spent some time in Africa and then came back, but found himself kind of on the street, got involved in gangs and not quite the right path for what he wanted to be doing. But then through food, he kind of reversed this dangerous downward spiral that he was on and embarked on this incredible journey from sort of kind of being on ships to kind of training at things like the Colony Institute of America. So then suddenly by the age of 30, finding himself opening this restaurant called Kith Kin in Washington, D.C., which was completely groundbreaking. It was one of the sort of first African-Caribbean restaurants that I suppose just kind of took the nation by storm and was really sort of revolutionary in its approach to telling this diasporic African-Caribbean sort of story, but sort of through his incredible lens. So he now sort of curates this incredible thing, which is called the Family Reunion uh, in America, which is, you know, a celebration of the black food experience uh, in America in many ways. And he's sort of the figurehead of that. I love the writing. I love the journey that it takes you on. It's really powerful. At times, it's quite shocking, but it's very much about this whole idea of chasing your dreams, even (laughs) when they don't turn out as you expected. So for him, what I love about it is that he's relentless. He's always taking a step forward, even if it's a messy step forward. He's sort of like, no, I want this. I want to make sure that my end goal is kind of there. And there's a really incredible quote, which I just wanted to read out, which is he sort of says... 
When I push open the kitchen doors, I want to see a dining room full of diners, but especially brown and black diners, who, looking at their plates, feel seen, celebrated and recognised. And when I look in the mirror, I want to see a young black chef who made that world a reality. Wow. It's really powerful. It is really. Okay, the next one is a previous podcast guest and a friend of mine, Felicity Cloak. Um, she actually came on to talk about this book. And I have to say, I think this book's an absolute <laughs> riot. Like, I laughed so much. <laughs> well, look, this book, it's uh, One More Croissant for the Road. Um, this is a great holiday read. I love this book. Yeah. I actually read this in France. So Felicity Cloak, I mean, yeah, she's a friend of the show. She's... Um, uh, the author of The Guardian's long-running weekly column, How to Cook the Perfect, um, as well as you know, writing for lots of other publications. She's sort of been named Journalist of the Year by Fortnum Mason and all sorts of kind of, you know, Guild of Food Writers Awards, etc. Um, and she has, you know, she has her cookbooks and then she has two sort of food memoirs. So yeah. one we've talked about before is Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, yeah. which traces the breakfast culture right. in, around the UK. But this is the one that came before, One More Class on for the Road. It just makes me smile just saying the title of this book. So effectively what it is, is it's a culinary cycling journey around France where Felicity kind of packed her bike, which his name I've forgotten. Is it called Eric or it's called Mm. something? I can't remember. Anyway. I'm going to park it and then I'll remember by the end of the Um, day. And what she does is she basically goes on this kind of search of culinary perfection around France on a bike, which is hilarious, hysterical, often, you know, you kind of feel her pain sometimes. Yeah, she's, because often she turns up and it's closed. She turns and up and it's closed, but she's bracing the elements. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's Camping. like, she's like, every now and then she's like, I got to the campsite, I unpacked my tent and I just cried. Cried, yes. <laughs> and because she has to have crisps for dinner, <laughs> which I know for you that's a dream, but you know, exactly. it's like... <laughs> um, but But what she's doing is going in pursuit of kind of French culinary excellence, effectively. Yeah. So she traces some incredible sort of iconic dishes. So things like a cherry cliff fusi, a tartatin. She goes to Bayonne and has hot chocolate. She traces things like poulet pot, cassoulet, mm. ratatouille, tartiflette, salad layonnaise. I'd never had a salad layonnaise until I read this book. And it's a, it's a good salad. It's yeah, kind it's of quite good, regular. Um, it's, not, it, it's a French salad, as in there's a, a lot very, of fried potatoes in it. In it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but what she also does is it's this sort of... You know, she talks a lot about the characters she meets along the way and kind of, you know, sort of just Mm. this sort of the physical exertion of being on a bike. She has these amazing sort of um, little interludes throughout, which she calls Pause Cafe, where she kind of reflects on a quirk of French culture, but through this kind of British perspective. Mm. So there's a whole bit around French trains. There's a whole bit around kind of a guide to the French terms for cooked meats. There's a guide to French sauces. There's a really interesting one where she kind of says, did you know that the croissant is actually not French, but an appropriation yeah. <laughs> of the Austrian Kipfel. So she says, my entire book called One More Crossing for the Road is actually an appropriation. <laughs> it's, it's really, really fun no, and really kind fun. of funny. And, you know, I mean, there are so many quotes from this book, which I just totally love. She talks a lot about, you know, part of the reason that she loves cycling is because um, cycling is an excuse to have a hip flask and snacks in your yeah. <laughs> in your, in your, in your um, panniers. Exactly. Uh, and then she talks a lot about... Um, Sort of the, the there's a lot of kind of unexpected things she ends up eating or doing. So, for example, she goes to Epinay, which is sort of you know, the center of Champagne in many ways, and it's just such a glorious day. And she sort of talks about the fact that the square in Epinay, and like any of the other squares she's been to in France, seems to invite picnicking. So yeah. <laughs> she sort of says, you know, instead of going to a restaurant, we ate hamburger sandwiches 
We ate from which were left over from breakfast. We ate cherries till our stomachs ate, and we drank warm champagne from a miniature bottle. <laughs> and she said, "You know, no Michelin-starred players could ever have lived up to the no, sophistication I of love that. that." I just totally love it. Now on to another US legend that I didn't know much about. But after reading your notes, I've actually gone and bought the book because I was so intrigued by it. I mean, I've heard of her, but I've never read yes. anything by her. Do you want to introduce? So this is, well, the person is Ruth Reichel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the book we want to talk about today is called Garlic and Sapphires, The Secret Life of a Critic in Disguise. So Ruth Reichel is kind of this institutional figurehead in food. Um, she's an American food writer and she was formerly the editor-in-chief of Gourmet magazine. Um But before that, she was the restaurant critic of the LA Times. And then she was also the restaurant critic of the New York Times, which is often regarded to be the most powerful position in food in the world. People are like, you know, if you're the New York (laughs) Times food guide, you are quite an important person in the world of food. Um, But she's this sort of incredible food writer. She did did all sorts of stuff. She also had restaurants in... There was a sort of very specific time in the 70s that kind of drove this culinary revolution uh, in Berkeley, California in particular, which is where Chez Panisse, uh, the Alice Waters restaurant is. And she was sort of part of that whole scene. So, you know, she's been kind of this sort of radical force in food for years. But she's also written a lot of food memoirs. There's one called Tender at the Bone... There's one called Comfort Me with Apples. There's one called For You, Mum, uh, which is kind of all about her relationship with her mum. This is the one that I love and I've just read and I found so funny that I just am recommending it. And I'm probably everyone that <laughs> everyone I see at Christmas is basically going to be getting this book. Okay. Um, it's called Garlic and Sapphires. And what it does is it traces the moment in her career where she went from being the relatively anonymous food critic of the LA Times yeah. in sort of, you know, sunshiny, kind of fluid, very chilled out LA to suddenly being the food critic in New York where... She thought she was anonymous, but actually realizes <laughs> on the flight over that everyone knows who she is. Oh my God, how did they know who she was? So, um, what happens is that she basically realizes that the New York food scene and the LA food scene are just completely different. So, while she can kind of pass by under the radar um, in LA, yeah. in New York, and there's a really hilarious passage at the beginning where she gets on the flight at the very beginning and she says, The woman next to me said, I know who you are. And she was like, how do you know who I am? And it's like, because your face is up in every back kitchen in all of New York. Oh, my God. So they know. So, so they, they because know. Because they're, they're rabid about they're, finding out exactly. who the critics are. So she has this, it, basically the book opens with this quandary where she's like, how, the, the, the most important prerequisite for being a food critic is that you're anonymous. Yeah. What am I going to do? And what this book does is it traces that moment of her going from LA, where she's relatively anonymous, to being in New York, where she thinks she's anonymous, but actually everyone knows who she is, but having to embark on this brand new job at the New York Times. I won't give too much away. All I'll say is it involves a lot of wigs. I was going to say wigs involved. Wigs are absolutely involved, yes. So it's this incredible snapshot into kind of the New York food scene of a certain era. And what was quite radical and amazing about her was that she made people sort of... She goes to a lot of the classic restaurants. Mm. So places like, for example, the Four Seasons restaurant was the place that yeah. you know, the, the sort of the power lunch was invented at the Four Seasons. And she kind of gives her own unique, unique kind of take on that. But what was really interesting was that she sort of was one of the first to kind of put Asian, Chinese and kind of Southeast Asian restaurants 
that were not necessarily on the radar kind of on the map. And actually, when she first did that, it was quite radical. Um, And she talks a lot about her experience as a woman in food writing who was taking over from a well-established man, effectively. And the experience that she had of kind of, you know, trying to shake things up and trying to make things kind of different. And actually, it's down to people like Ruth Reichel in many ways that kind of diasporic cuisine sort of went from being under the radar and very much just for people that were adventurous enough to go out and for the desperate themselves to suddenly things that were getting this incredible sort of recognition from a sort of a wider audience. And it's quite a radical thing that she did. And for me, for that reason, I think, you know, it's quite sort of groundbreaking and mold-breaking. And what this book does is it kind of takes you through her own mind whilst she was doing this and saying, well, I don't care. This is the best food in New York. And therefore, it's my job as the food critic of the New York Times. I love this book. It's hysterically funny. As I said, there are lots of wigs involved. There's lots of... um, outfits and clothes that she borrows from her deceased mum. Like, there's there's all sorts of craziness that goes on. <laughs> I love it. There's all sorts of stuff around, you know, trying not to get noticed, trying to kind of, anyway, really fun book, yeah. Garlic and Sapphires. Recommended. I've, I've already bought it, so <laughs> I'm there. Um, okay, so we're, we're moving on to another prolific writer, Elizabeth Luard, who's who's written 24 books, including two novels and four memoirs. And you've chosen the intriguingly named Squirrel Pie and Other Stories. Yes. I love, <laughs> I love this. So, I mean, Elizabeth Lewis is just this incredible, you know, she's a food writer, she's an artist, she's a broadcaster. As you say, she's written so many mm. books, but actually four of them are memoirs. And she's really, really well-traveled as a person. She, you know, she very much would consider herself to be a citizen of the world. She was a Londoner by birth. She spent her childhood in Latin America. She brought her children up in Andalusia. Uh, she lived for quite a long time on the island of Mull in the Hebrides okay. in the west of Scotland. Um, but actually, um, most recently was living in a farmhouse in Wales and is has sort of travelled the world in pursuit of kind of food experiences. And this book, which is called Squirrel Pie and Other Stories, <laughs> um, is exactly that. It kind of is her sort of telling of some of the most fascinating travels and things that she's experienced from different cultures, and in covering, you know, in covering extraordinary ingredients and usual places, it's this kind of very forward, sort of unapologetic snapshot into all of these kind of culinary cultures yeah, that she's right. encountered. So, what I found really interesting about this is that the squirrel pie title is not something that she wants you to kind of go, "Oh no, squirrel." She's going in Maine. This is a big part of the cuisine. Yeah. They eat and they hunt for squirrels because, you know, in the winter months when everything freezes over. And, you know, there's, there's, there is no there is no other fresh meat. The yeah. only thing that you can do is to go out either sort of hunting for sort of game birds or woodcock grouse and squirrels and rabbits are part of yeah. that. And she sort of says, I don't I'm not saying, oh, no, ooh, squirrel pie. She's going squirrel pie is something that that's there. Is, yeah. That is there. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, it's that kind of, again, celebration of the resilience of all the people around yeah. the world that sort of have their own kind of unique cuisines and kind of ingredients that they sort of that they make and that they cook and that are very much, you know, that therefore part of that culture. Um, mm. I really kind of love that kind of a, approach to kind of food memoir that she takes. So there are amazing anecdotes of her kind of scouring for snails in Crete. Uh, she samples incredible spices in Ethiopia. Wow. Uh, she talks about, kind of, she goes off to places like um, Tasmania, for example. She is, I think, one of the first people that I've ever heard writing about Hawaiian poke before it became oh, yeah. a trend. Uh, she was, you know, over in kind of Hawaii and she talks a lot about 
kind of where sort of that came from. She spends a lot of time in Boston, which she talks about. So this really is global. I mean, it is like, really global. Yeah. As I say, she's a citizen of the world and she kind of has this really kind of unique lens. Yeah that she sort of tells all of these incredible food narratives through. I really enjoyed this book, you know, partly because it sort of gives you this snapshot into these unique cultures. Yeah, It's told through Elizabeth Lenz, but there's this sort of, it's very grounded in kind of reality. It's not exoticized. It's, sorry, it's not exoticized. No. It's not sort of fetishized. In many ways, it's sort of this just real fascinating down-to-earth kind of hands-on. You know, she talks about the fact that she herself went squirrel hunting. Yeah. Um and I, I found it really fascinating, and I really enjoyed the writing. Um, there are, you know, there are lots of her, lots of, book, of her books to kind of dive into. But if you kind of want an overview of kind of yeah. Elizabeth Luard, like Swirl Pies, go for that people. one. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, finally, someone who's recently found fame in the food world. I'm usually a bit sniffy about actors and celebs cooking, but um, Stanley Tucci's got form as a foodie, hasn't he? He really has. <laughs> so this, I mean, this is Stanley Tucci's taste, my life through food. Yeah. Um, he kind of needs no introduction, really. Yeah. He's, you know, an Italian-American actor, born in New York in the 60s. He's directed all sorts of films. He's been in films like The Devil Wears Prada, uh, Easy A. But, you know, two of his most well-loved films are food films. Yeah, so there's Big Night. Big that. Night is, you know, the iconic food yeah. film, which kind of traces this sort of family kind of Italian-American restaurant and the kind of journey these brothers go on with a very famous sort of a timpano that kind of gets baked and this sort of very poignant scene at the end yeah. where they're making an omelette and sort of hugging and if, if you haven't seen it you must watch it's it really, actually yeah. we should do a food films yes, episode we really it. need to do that um, and then Julie and Julia which you know traces kind of oh, yeah. the, Julia Child the, yeah, yeah Julia Child which is an amazing and she he plays Paul Child which is Julia Child's husband this is kind of a really fun read and kind of basically is a sort of intimate and charming kind of life in and out of the kitchen kind of memoir, which kind of tells his stories of his sort of American-Italian, sorry, tells the stories of his Italian-American family sort of, you know, growing up every night around this kind of kitchen table. It kind of reflects on this sort of intersection of food and life, but it's filled also with anecdotes of him moving into food films. So he writes a lot about how he prepared for both Big Night and kind of um, Julia Child. He gives really interesting kind of recipes. He talks a lot about the nuances of kind of Italian-American diaspora. There's a really interesting bit where he sort of talks about how spaghetti bolognese is this sort of appropriated dish of spaghetti from Naples and <laughs> ragu alla bolognese. And actually, you would never put bolognese with spaghetti. You'd only ever put it with kind of a pappardelle or some other pasta. So <laughs> it's really kind of playful and fun and interesting and gives you lots of this kind of insight. But... It's also kind of a journey in many ways of his, him kind of going from this sort of, you know, this kind of New York kid yeah. to suddenly becoming this world famous actor. Uh, and now, you know, his, there's his sort of big food programs where he kind of goes around Italy as well. There's some amazing recipes in there. There's the, the, the ragu tucci, which I haven't made, but it's basically mm-hmm. sort of stewing beef, ribs, basil, fresh oregano. There's red wine, all sorts of stuff, which it just sounds really, really delicious. Um and also, you kind of get the quirks of him being not only American, but kind of almost a sort of adopted Brit because yeah, he's he married a Brit. Yeah, and it, it, you see him around a lot. <laughs> he is often around in London. I, I, I have bumped into him many times. I've seen him in the, uh, oh, what, where did I last see him? At the Fortnum Awards. Yes, yes. Um, and he was surrounded. He I was mean, he was mobbed and I was trying not to get my, I was trying not to do that cringe thing of getting my selfie. But um, what I love, there's this sort of, <laughs> Really interesting passages that he kind of talks about. There's a, there's a lovely passage about him talking about kind of lunches growing up and yeah. kind of you know, things like kind of um, 
bologna and mustard sandwiches and American cheese and mayo sandwiches and ravaging dill pickles and apple juice and kind of all this kind of American sort of you know, raiding the freezer for ice yeah. pops that were unnatural colors. I kind of love this kind of insight into this kind of childhood in the 60s in New York. Yeah. But then he also talks about how watching cooks on camera really influenced him. Yeah. Um, and the two people that he talks about, and he has really interesting passages about both of them. One is, um, unsurprisingly, Julia Child. Yeah. But the second one is, he says, if Julia Child is the queen for me, mm. her prince would be Keith Floyd. Oh, yeah. Which I love because I adore Keith Floyd and I love that Keith Floyd was such an influence. I'm obsessed with Keith Floyd. Yeah, and it's really amazing. I love the way that he writes about Keith Floyd because, interesting, you know, not many Americans know who Keith Floyd is. Um, And he has this amazing bit where he writes about why, for him, Keith Floyd is the prince of TV and how Keith Floyd has influenced him yeah. and his cooking and his approach to kind of exploring food. So it's a really fun read. You know, it's you know, it's a mega Hollywood star, but giving a very intimate, fun, yeah. enjoyable kind of memoir on and food. And he loves food as well. He's not he just, just showboating. Yeah. He's, he's in yeah. there, isn't he? I love that. That's yeah. brilliant. What a great one to end on. Um, thanks so much for sharing all of those brilliant books with us. Good. There's so much inspiration there. And please do come back to chat to us again I will. Maybe I'll have written a food memoir by then. Please do. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I think you have, kind of. I mean, there's a lot of memoir in Mother Tongue. It's not quite up there, but yeah. No, thanks for having me. No, thanks again. Good. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.